And, and Terry, it would be happy Christmas, right? Um, well, you know, I can't think of a better way for us to celebrate Christmas, whether you're here with us or, or tuning in online, than to gather together and just worship. So thank you guys for being here and being with us. And, and maybe this is a break for some of you moms and dads. Maybe you've been kind of busy the last couple days, maybe even this morning, maybe last night, uh, cooking and, and rapping. And you don't mind just sitting here for a little bit and, uh, and, and taking a break from it all. And, uh, and hearing God's Word. So I've got a, a special long sermon prepared for you. I, I can hear some of you kids, maybe you're groaning inside right now. I, I'm kind of kidding. I, I'll try not to make this too long, because maybe, maybe you've already opened your presents, but maybe you're like my kids, and you've just kind of like un- unloaded the stockings, and there's still some presents waiting, and, and I get it. Um, in fact, you know, they say, kids, when you get bigger and more mature, you come to understand truths like, um, sometimes good things are wrapped in small packages, but I want to tell you, really cool, interesting things are in big packages. All right, I'm trying to relate here uh, with the kids. Uh, it's true. I remember as a kid walking out. My parents used to there'd be nothing under the tree until Christmas morning, right? And I remember going down there early in the morning, and there was this big old present, and you know what? My name was on it. And you know what it was? It was the guns of Navarone. Okay, I was in army men, and it was the coolest ever, like, mountain with three levels, and you could put your army men all over the place, and had cannons, and it was, I spent hours um, creating battles, you know, the, the Americans and the Germans, it was awesome. So, you know what, um, big, cool things come in big packages, but I do want you to remember, kids, that the greatest Christmas present ever is the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and that's a big word incarnation, right? What does that mean? It means him coming and being born as a human being. And it's worth taking time to to wonder and worship together about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the greatest Christmas present of all time. Now, most scholars agree that John actually wrote his gospel last, after Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written. Okay, so John would have read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in fact, we know that John was part of the inner circle of Jesus Christ. So he would have heard the stories. And John, in fact, was the disciple that Jesus, if you remember when he was hanging on the cross, he, he gave his mother to John and, and placed his mother under John's care. Remember, Mary was a widow. Okay, and so he, he, he gave Mary to John and uh, history tells us that actually John cared for Mary for decades after Jesus had died and buried and rose from the dead. In fact, if you go to Ephesus, Turkey, right outside ancient Ephesus is a house that archaeologists believe belonged to the Virgin Mary in her latter years. We've had a chance to visit that house years ago. And, and John was there and, and would have heard from Mary the, the stories, all the details, details we don't have even, about what the birth was like, the Christmas story was like, uh, the manger story, right? And these shepherds who showed up, having, having heard, from, heard, heard from the angels and the, 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 the wise men who showed up and exactly how many of them they were, right? And where exactly they came from. There, there's a lot of stuff he would have known. He would be very familiar with all of these details. And so as he sat down with his pen or feather or whatever he was writing with, and undertook to write this last 
gospel, he would have thought carefully about what to say, how to summarize it all. And as the church father Clement of Alexandria put it, John went about penning a spiritual gospel, right? All these details had already been recorded by Matthew and Luke and and Mark. And so as he thought about this incredible story of the incarnation, he summarized it with four immortal words, and that is, the word became flesh. The word became flesh. Four words that describe really the incomprehensible for us. And, and let's be clear, sometimes it's helpful to, to know what we're not talking about here when we talk about the incarnation. This is not God the Son stopping being God in order to be human. Some people believe that. This is not that God the Son came and possessed a human being, like chose a human being and lived inside of him. That's, that's not what we're talking about here either. And, and there are people who have uh, taken it that way. This is not God the Son appeared to look like a human, but wasn't really. It, it was just kind of a phantom. And there are a lot of folks, especially in early church history, who believed that because they couldn't grasp what we've talked about before, how, how God could truly put on flesh and be dependent on another human for life, or even, for, the, for, the, for, the, for that matter, later die on a cross. How can God die? And so there were many people um, that, that early church councils had to address early on who, who believed that Christ was God who appeared to be human but was not truly human. But what the Bible says is the word became flesh. So the, the mystery and the majesty of the incarnation is God became human. Now, if you have an ESV study Bible, uh, there's, there's a note here that I think is really good on, on this point, and it says that this is the most important event in all of history. The eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, infinitely holy Son of God took on a human nature and lived among humanity as one who was both God and man at the same time in one person. Now, there is majesty, there is mystery here. And I love the, the lyrics to the song from, I think it was the 90s, by Graham Kendrick, Meekness and Majesty. It sums it up by saying, meekness and majesty, manhood and deity in perfect harmony, the man who is God. Lord of eternity dwells in humanity, kneels in humility and washes our feet. Oh, what a mystery, meekness and majesty. Bow down and worship, for this is your God. And I, and I hope, despite all the distractions, maybe even in your minds, kids, that right now you can put all that aside and, and focus on him and, and actually worship this our God and even wonder together. And so I see three main points in this text that, that Pastor uh, Elder Barry uh, uh, read for us this morning. Uh, and you may, I mean, you could come up with five or ten, but I didn't want this to be an eternal Christmas message. So three points, and the first is this, that the Word dwelt among us. He dwelt among us, with us. Look at verse 14 again. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the Son, only Son from the Father, full of grace and 
truth. Now, now I want you to go back with me in your mind to the Old Testament, to the early years uh, in which the, the children of Israel followed God through the wilderness towards the promised land. And we read in Exodus chapter 13 that, that at night they were led by a cloud of fire. Now, can you imagine that? The, the, the cloud of fire looking up and I'm sure being um, that there was a sense of comfort, uh, clear direction. It was very clear that God's presence was there near them, probably also a little bit fearful. Uh, that's a cloud of fire. That thing came too close, what would happen? We'd be consumed, right? Um, but the, there was a sense in which they could see God was leading them. And then when it came time to camp, the cloud would stop, fire by night, uh, cloud during the day, and it would stop, and they would set up this tent that they called the tabernacle. And, and what that tent represented was God's presence living with them right in the middle of the camp. But remember, they also understood very well that God was, was, incredible, was holy, was incredibly holy. So God was in their camp, but there was still some distance. And if you remember, there, there, were, there were some separation. There were actually walls, fabric walls of separation with that tent, right? There was an outer court, and then there was an inner temple that only the, only the Levites could go into. And then there was a Holy of Holies where the ark would actually be camped. And the concept was God was living there in the Holy of Holies. And only on one day a year could the high priest go in there, right? And if you messed around, you got it wrong, it, it, was, it was immediate death. And so there, there was God in the camp, and yet access was very restricted. Well, the tabernacle later became Solomon's temple which was the visible representation of God's presence on earth. The idea in the, the Jewish mind was that Mount Zion was the center of the earth and that that, that that temple represented God's presence. It was like a portal uh, on earth between the eternal omnipotent God and mankind. And he had come and he was camping with the Israelites. He was living with the Israelites. And so all of this is in John's mind here in verse 14, in, in, in which he writes those four words, and then he says, the word dwelt. The, the, the Greek word here is eskonesin, which means actually literally tabernacle. It's only used once in, in, this, in this way uh, in the entire New Testament. And it literally means he camped, he, he tented among us. So this is a reference to the tabernacle, God living with his people and now the word has become flesh and is tabernacling. He is camping. He is living with us. And then John writes, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only, and that word only means like the unique or the, the one and only, you know, the, the greatest Christmas present ever here, son from the father. Now, now, John's talking about glory. Remember that, that John was one of the few who witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus, which was his glory being unwrapped, right? Jesus, the word, took on flesh. And, and so um, by tenting himself, by, by clothing himself in humanity, God's glory was not um, of, uh, fully revealed. And yet in that moment, that 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 present was unwrapped just a bit so that the disciples on that mountain beheld his glory. And we read in Luke chapter 9, verse 28, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James. They went up on the mountain to pray, and as he was praying, 
the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And if you remember, Peter saw all this, and he bumbled a little bit. And, and then we read in verse 34, as he was saying, as Peter was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So I think John was remembering that experience when he wrote these words. But not only that experience on the mountain of this transfiguration, but he was remembering just this concept of every day, spending time with Jesus, seeing the glory of God revealed in the way that that Jesus lived every day, and the way that Jesus responded to the pressures of life. John writes, full of grace and truth. We, we beheld his glory, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth in perfect balance with one another. Now, now let's think about that for a moment. Is it easy to hold grace and truth in balance? It, it's not, right? I mean, uh, you know, our culture wants to say, well, grace means that all paths lead to the sea, right? But that's not truth, uh, or all, all streams lead to the sea, right? Um, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. As long as people are sincere in whatever they believe, they'll end up in heaven. They're all going to be okay. But that, that's a violation of the, of the truth of the gospel, right? But then there are those of us who believe in truth, but sometimes we like to go around and bash people on the head uh, without grace. Uh, graceless truth is ugly, right? It can be ugly, and sometimes Christians can be ugly uh, out there in the world using the Bible for their own personal power, maybe, to try to gain power over other people. And, and so they, they may use Scripture and, and abuse Scripture to bash people on the head. And that's, that may, there may be some truth without grace. But Jesus Christ revealed God's glory, grace, and truth in perfect balance. And in verse 15, we, we see this parenthetical expression or a, a sentence in, 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 the, in the ESV. It's all in parentheses. But he says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now this isn't John the disciple of Jesus now who's, who's writing this gospel. This is John the baptizer, right? The, the crazy John guy, right? The, the prophet. And he was actually, even though he's written about in the New Testament, he's really the last of the Old Testament prophets. He, he came in the spirit of Elijah. He was a wild man eating locusts, right? A, a spectacle. People would go out and just listen to him because he, I mean, he was just crazy looking, right? Living out there in the wilderness. Uh, and yet he, he had things to say pointing to the Messiah as all of the Old Testament prophets had. And here what he does is he points to Jesus and he says, he has come. This is it. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. In other words, my significance, John the baptizer says, is, is to point to Christ. And now that he's come, don't, don't look at me, look at him. That's what he told his disciples. He was before me. But how can John actually say that? Because we, we know that John was actually the cousin of Jesus. And he was actually, in terms of timelines, he was born in this world before Jesus was born. So how was Jesus before John? Well, 
before Jesus was born as a human, Jesus, God the Son, dwelt in eternity past with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit. Remember the words that John penned and opened his gospel with in verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So let's think now about the bigness and the humility of God that we see here in this Christmas story. Here you have the the creator of the stars and the universe, the known and unknown worlds. Being born as a baby in a backwater. Paul Paul described this humility of Christ's incarnation in Philippians chapter 2. Verse 6, when he wrote, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or hanging on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, he did not empty himself of his godhood, of his divine nature. What he emptied himself was of his divine prerogative. By not losing his glory, but by clothing his glory within humanity. And so being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I I frankly still, uh, even with the depravity of mankind, cannot think of a more humbling way to die than the way the Romans used to crucify people. Pastor Matt Carter wrote, the incarnation is amazing because of why God became man, so that he could die for our sin. He renounced the glory due him, becoming poor, so that through his poverty, we might become rich. Have you thought about that? He became poor so that through his poverty, as a poor man, as even a a homeless, itinerant teacher in a backwater, uh, in, a, in, a, in a time and uh, historical space in which life was really, really hard, every day would have been really hard, okay? That's what he chose to enter into to, to, to get the human experience and to offer himself as a sacrifice for us. Uh, he um, became poor so that we might have eternal life, so we might become rich. Do you believe that this morning? Is your mind on that this morning? I, I hope so. I hope so. We read, and and, and Luke summarizes all of this in one verse, in verse 7, by saying, And she gave birth as Mary to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, which were like rags, and laid him in a manger, which you can imagine the smells and the objects all around that manger in that day, in in that time, because there was no place for them in the inn. Born outside, in in a homeless state, in, in poverty. Well, the word became flesh, and dwelt among us. And our second point this morning is that the Word gives us grace. The Word gives us grace. Verses 16 and 17. Now, grace is an important theme here in, the, in this paragraph that we're looking at this morning. The, the word grace itself is used four times. And we read in verse 16, for from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And some translations translate this, grace heaped upon grace grace. In other words, the more grace we receive from Jesus and then lean on him through faith in our lives, 
the, the more grace keeps coming, the more grace he keeps giving. We, we never use it up. That's the idea here. It's kind of like, like, think of an endless tap, right? So that our cup can indeed run over with grace. Martin Luther tried to explain this verse, this concept of, of grace upon grace, by writing, the sun is not dimmed and darkened by shining on so many people or by providing the entire world with light and splendor. It remains or retains its light intact. It loses nothing. It is immeasurable, perhaps able to illumine 10 more worlds. Now, here's the thing. We, we know a little bit more than Luther did about the sun and the solar system, right? Um, I think he was underselling that or underunderstood how many worlds could actually be sustained by the light of the sun. So Luther continues, Thus Christ our Lord, to whom we must flee, is an interminable well, the chief source of all grace. This fountain constantly overflows with sheer grace. So there's several amazing truths here when we think about grace upon grace. But by definition, what is grace? We say unmerited favor. Okay, maybe that does it for you. Maybe it doesn't. You're like, what, what, what does that mean? Okay, um, well, what that means is grace is favor which you cannot deserve or earn. So think of it as the smile of God upon you. Well, here's the beautiful truth of this statement. Jesus does not get tired of giving you grace. I might get tired of giving you grace. Uh, I might get tired of giving my children grace. Jesus never gets tired of giving us grace. His grace is greater than all of our sin, and his grace is greater than the worst thing that you've ever done, but you must humbly ask for it. Grace is understood against the dark canvas of our sin. You know, God made a beautiful world, and when he first created the world, we, we read that nature was in harmony, and Adam and Eve towered as the crown of God's creation. They were his image bearers. They were stewards of this earth. And they lived in perfect harmony with it at that time. Perfect harmony with the creation. They, the animals weren't worried about them killing them, and they weren't worried about animals trying to kill them. Perfect harmony with not only creation, but one another. The, the perfect marriage. Frankly, the only perfect marriage that has existed on this planet. Uh, and, and sadly, that did not exist forever. Uh, it ceased to exist when they ate of the tree. Uh, and they lived in perfect harmony with their God, but that all was broken by that first act of rebellion, that act of treason against God, and, and it's been broken ever since. But the beauty of the Christmas story is that against that dark canvas, God came into our brokenness to save and to heal us by becoming one of us. And so that's the beauty of of, of the words of the gospel that Jesus shared with Nicodemus in John three sixteen, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, should not perish but have eternal life. One preacher wrote, if we just say, God, I want that grace, I want to yield to you, I want to turn around and throw myself completely on you, that the pitcher of grace will be poured out on our lives. 
When, when I think of the concept of grace, I, I think of the story of John Newton. And you know the song, Amazing Grace. I mean, it's a powerful song that we sing today. It's transformed cultures. Maybe you've been to Scotland before. I remember visiting the, 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 the tattoo in Edinburgh where you have this, and not like a you know, thing on your shoulder, but, but actually the, the military tattoo, hundreds of bagpipers all walking out of the castle there in Edinburgh. And, and, and there was some cool stuff. You know, I was sitting next to this, this young German guy who I guess had some Scottish blood and he was incredibly patriotic for Scotland. You know, so when they unfurled the big British flag, he's yelling, boo. Um, uh, the Scottish flag gets, you know, rolled out and he's, yeah, you know, Braveheart showed up and, and slid down his sword on a zip line and all that stuff. But the coolest thing was they had a lonely bagpiper, a lone bagpiper on top of a tower on a turret playing Amazing Grace. And then like, I don't know, several hundred bagpipers walked out of the gates all playing Amazing Grace. It's powerful. All right? They've been doing that for centuries. An amazing song, but, but I don't know. Maybe you've heard the story of John Newton. John Newton was actually born into a Christian family uh, and, and, and loved and taught the gospel as a very young man, but at the age of six, his mom and dad died, and he was orphaned. And after that, he was, he was abused and mistreated by relatives who cared for him for a while, and eventually to flee, to get away from all that, he joined the Royal Navy as a young man where his life just went downhill. Became a drunken brawler, uh, he was just depraved, uh, went from bad to worse, eventually he deserted the Navy, and he fled, because, you know, mutiny, you know, that could end up with a rope around your neck. So he, he fled to Africa, and he ended up working for a Portuguese slave trader. And, and worse led to worse, and eventually he became a depraved first mate on a slave ship. And that's what he did. And you can imagine the wickedness uh, of the slave trade. Taking human beings made in God's image, treating them like animals, uh, taking them from their continent of Africa to the New World and other places, to the East Indies, to, to, to sell for labor, uh, indentured uh, labor as chattel slavery. It was a wicked trade, and this was a wicked man. Um, one, one time he stole, he, he, he broke in and stole the ship's uh, uh, grog, right, their, their alcohol, and he got so drunk he fell overboard, and one of his mates saved his life by actually harpooning him and pulling him back on board harpooned, all right? And somehow the guy survived all that. Uh, he had a nasty scar across his face for the rest of his life from that incident. Well, years later, off the, in another boat off the coast of Scotland, he, he had a situation where his, the boat was, was flooding, and he spent several days literally bailing, try, trying to live. And somehow he, he remembered the truth of the gospel. God spoke to him, sh- shone a light of truth on his heart, and he was radically saved and became a preacher and a songwriter. And he wrote the words, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That, that wasn't like exaggeration. He meant it. I was a wretch. And his grace was strong enough to save me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind. But, but now I see. So I hope that today your heart is filled with hope. But maybe this Christmas, the truth is that you're struggling for hope. Life is hard. And, and, and we, we go through battles. And, and so there was a, another guy who was involved in this song that you might not know about. Uh, this was a friend of John Newton who was a member of his church. And his name was William Cowper. 
Maybe you've heard that name before. William Cowper was a great songwriter poet who actually helped uh, Newton out with a number of his songs. was actually the genius behind some of his songs. And, and Cowper wrote some songs on his own. So maybe you've heard the old song, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Okay, uh, William Cowper penned that song. And so William Cowper had a, a deep understanding of theology. He had a correct understanding of theology, and yet he battled depression most of his life. In fact, several times he actually tried to commit suicide. So this is a man of God who believed the gospel and had a deep understanding of theology, but he battled, he really battled depression. And he was a member of Newton's church. And his baseline issue was that he feared in his soul that God would end up rejecting him. That no matter what he did, one day he would end up being cast into hell. That was just a deep fear he really had a hard time shaking. And so in this song, Newton wrote these lines to encourage his friend Cowper. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. T'was grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. So if your faith is in Jesus, know this, that he will never leave you or forsake you. God the Father was was willing to send God the Son to be born as a human and to live in poverty, to be rejected and crucified to save you from your sins. And so if he was willing to do that for you, if your faith is sincere, he is never going to let you go. He will never abandon you. So keep looking to Jesus. And today, Christmas morning, is a great time to put your gaze on Christ, on Jesus. Don't lose this opportunity. Don't miss this opportunity. Well, John continues in verse 17. Within this theme of grace, he writes, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth. Here we are, those words again. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, we've talked a lot about this in the past, so I'm not going to belabor this point on Christmas morning, but all of the law points to Jesus. It showed God's people his righteous standard for their lives, but it also showed them their inability to to attain that standard, that righteous standard, right? They needed the grace and truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Now, truth, gospel truth, gives us perspective. It gives us right perspective, like, like a compass pointing true north, right, about the world that we live in, and about ourselves, our own hearts, and about God. So gospel truth tells us that our world is beautiful, but it is broken. And so our hope should not be in the world today. So kids, dads, one day your Christmas presents are going to become old and broken. So Make sure that your hope is not in them, right? Our hope should be in the world to come. The truth about us is that though our society and media and everywhere else is going to try to tell you that that we're basically good, and on Christmas Day that's a nice sentimental thought that humans are basically good, well, gospel truth is that we are depraved. We're, We're fallen. We're sinful. Every aspect of our nature has fallen, And as such, we can't please God on our own. 
And so the good news of the gospel is that God has sent a Savior to rescue us. Like a, like a superhero. That's what superheroes do. We were talking about that this morning in our family devotions, right? The whole concept that our culture has that makes us like superheroes, you know, they go out there and selflessly rescue, put themselves at risk. That's a Christian concept. They, they got that from Jesus, the ultimate rescuer, superhero. And this is the true meaning of Christmas. He came to rescue us, to, to save us from our sin, from ourselves. Well, what is truth? Jesus himself is the truth. He is the compass that points true north. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He told Pilate in John 18, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So I hope that today you will listen to the voice of our Savior. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. What a gift. Don't separate grace and truth in your own life. Losing either is disastrous. Well, the world, or the word, dwelt among us. The word gives us grace and truth. And our final point this morning is the word made God known to us. The word made God known to us. Verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So God revealed himself in the Old Testament to people, but no, no one, none of these people that God revealed himself to, whether it was the, the cloud of fire or, or Moses, right? He's the closest. He was buried in the cleft of a rock of a mountain, and God allowed the backside of his glory to pass by. And you remember, remember he came out with just a, a radiating, shining face, but even there, he didn't have a complete revelation. Nobody fully saw God. And notice here that where it says the only God who is at the Father's side is a clear reference to Jesus. The Word was God. Jesus Christ is God Himself, God the Son. But now He reveals the heart of God the Father to us. Now Jesus said that to His disciples. In John 14, 9, He said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now you might hear things like that and you might think, well, I don't have the advantage that John and his gang had of, of, of seeing Jesus and walking next to him and, and actually hearing his teaching, being taught by him. Well, yes, you do. You know, read the Bible. Read the Word. Jesus not only showed his disciples what the Father was like, he told them, and, and the most important parts of his teaching that, that God intended for us to get were written down by his disciples. So we have these words in the Bible, and he has shared them with us. And so Jesus shared with you and with me that the heart of the Father in stories like that of the prodigal in Luke chapter 15. Maybe you remember that story, where you had a, a father with two sons, and the, the younger son rejected and dishonored his father and said, give me my inheritance now. You're, and you get your inheritance after your father dies, right? And especially in that culture, what he was saying to him was, I dishonor you. Um, you're dead to me. I don't care about you. I, I just want my money. And you know, sometimes um, uh, the, the worst thing we can get is what we ask for. And that's what this young man got. 
right? He got a big old present of money and he runs off to a faraway land and he squanders it on reckless, sinful living. And eventually he became impoverished. He came to the end of himself and he decided to go home and ask forgiveness and to say to his dad, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy of being a son. Make me your servant, right? At least there'll be a roof over my head and, and something to eat. And we read in Luke 15, 20, that here's how the father responded. And, and Jesus is telling us this story to tell us about the heart of God the Father. And he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, these words that he'd rehearsed, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he could ask for servanthood, we read, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and, and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. That's the heart of God the father that Jesus revealed to us. Well, back in the, in the Old Testament, God revealed himself to his people through that tabernacle and through that cloud of fire, which, which theologian Wayne Grudem calls the visible manifestation of the excellence of God's character. But, but now, at Christmas, the presence of God was shown to us in a human, in a baby who grew up to be a man and walked with us. So when Mary looked at her baby, and into, into his eyes, she was looking into the eyes of God. His disciples could lean up against him and hear his heartbeat. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Well, there, there's a lot to be excited about this Christmas. Um, kids, I'm not a preacher who wants to uh, ruin your day or, or put down all of the festivities. I hope you have an awesome time with your family. Um, um, family gatherings are beautiful. Gift giving can be a beautiful thing as long as we don't let greed take over, right? Uh, a special meal together is something that we should look forward to. Heaven is often described to us in those terms. But there is nothing more worthy of your excitement today than the gift of knowing God, the Father, through personal faith in His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I hope that you will remember Him this Christmas. Kids, your greatest Christmas gift today is not the biggest present or the littlest present under that tree. It's a Savior, Jesus. And so the words of this prophecy that are recounted in Matthew 1.23, I pray will be true for you. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let's pray together. We thank you, Father, that you did not just blow us all up or allow us to spin as a globe in our brokenness and depravity, but you sent your son, Jesus, to become one of us, to walk among us, to, to bring us grace ultimately the grace of salvation, the, the grace of, of having our sins forgiven, having a new heart such that we could relate with you, and, and to reveal you 
to us. Help us to treasure you in our hearts this Christmas. Help us treasure you with our time. Lord, help us treasure you with, with our, our, um, our, our thoughts and, and with our words. And I pray this in, in, in Christ's name. Amen. Will you stand?